Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day. <laughs> it's hump day. Hump day. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We are uh, trying to some uh, sometime this hour. Uh, Will Riley will be joining us. We may have a special appearance by Dr. Larry. Uh, so we're just, so it's, it's a Wednesday, and we're ready to rock and roll here. As we can say, it is hump day. Here's, some, here's an interesting tidbit here, okay? Uh, there have been several surveys done by Rasmussen and Heartland Institute on various issues, and they just, uh, you know, did you know? And so we're going to kind of review some of this data real quickly here. Uh, and so, the first thing that comes in play here. Let's talk, for example, the economy. Interesting aspect. What Rasmussen did is they said, okay, you know, which station you want, your favorite network, and they looked at who, which groups of people were more well informed on specific issues. Uh, those who watch Fox. And those and other cable outlets, and those who, let's say, will watch MSNBC, CBS, NBC, excellent, so on, so on. In other words, those that you would say watching the mainstream media, you know, what they who was better informed, right? Okay. Now, soon enough, CBS and NBC view. Here's some of the things they found. Take, for example, the economy and the budget. 70% of CBS and 65% NBC underestimated, NBC viewers underestimated the, the, you know, underestimated the national debt compared to only 44% of those who didn't watch those networks. 30% percent of the many mainstream viewers, including CNN, said the national debt was $5 trillion or less, uh, something that we haven't had since, let's say, 25 years ago. Whereas Fox News were more likely accurately to identify the national debt. So the viewers on many of the mainstream media underestimated the top tax rate, they underestimated the number of percentage of people who had health insurance. And those who watch Fox News and others were more accurate in their identification of, of the yeah, identification of the of those issues. In other words, if you listen to CNN, MSNBC, CBS, you are less likely to be informed on these issues than there were other issues. And, and when they found the same things with 
police shooting. And again, when they looked at those issues, what they found is the more you listen to the so-called mainstream media, less informed you were on these issues. I just want to bring that in because we're going to have a kind of an interesting conversation with Dr. Will Riley, who's on the line. Dr. Riley, welcome. Good, good to be on the show. Yes. Well, I can say uh, I was just kind of, you know, I kind of made a brief point, you know, and I know you probably have seen some of this. I know you talked about some of this data yourself, where if you watch your so-called mainstream media, you're going to be less informed on many issues, and, in, and including, like, for example, police shootings than if you don't. So that kind of makes me kind of, which brings me to the interesting point, because we get these debates all the time, and you've been kind of the forefront, and you just wrote a piece which we'll get into on commentary on Asian Americans. But I find it interesting is how ill-informed you are if you're watching the mainstream, so-called what I call the mainstream legacy media, your comments. Yeah, so I mean, this gets into something that's been a problem for a while. Um, I remember when cable news started in the 1990s with the old Turner Network television, the flashy graphics, then you had Fox, I mean, MSNBC came along as a liberal alternative to Fox, I mean, we don't need to do all the back history here. But people a couple times, kind of center-right, competent folks in social science, looked at how aware of issues you were likely to be if you consumed this kind of pop culture media. And again, going back for decades, you've often been likely to be less informed if you were a consumer on right or left than if you were just a regular taxpayer who sometimes went to the library. And now that Fox has really fortified good conservative hosts, Brett Baer, Chris Wallace, and the liberal side, Juan Williams, there's actually less of that effect if you watch Fox or take some of that conservative media that's sometimes criticized than there is if you're using just straight-up mainstream media. So, I mean, there have been a bunch of examples of this that have come out recently. I mean, one that we'll probably talk about is this police shooting uh, perceptions piece, uh, COVID perceptions piece, the national debt perceptions piece. But the police shootings thing was really wild. This is the Skeptic Research Center, which is a uh, very heterodox but also very respected research outlet. They, look, they asked people, large-end study of, if I recall correctly, 5,000 people, um, yeah. how many young unarmed brothers or young black men do you believe are killed annually by the police? And this is a tragic topic, and I figured people would say at least dozens. But if you actually read through the data, it's absolutely staggering. Like, of those people that identified themselves as leftists, and these were almost all heavy consumers of quote-unquote MSM, um, the percentage of people that thought the number was more than 1,000 every year was uh, something like 35. You know, another, uh, ten, another 15% actually thought that the number of unarmed black men killed every year by police was about 10,000. And like 8% thought it was more than that. So the average would have been three, four, five thousand 5,000 unarmed black men killed by cops. This is the, the leftist viewing audience. And if you moved over to just liberals, not leftists, the same figures I think were 26%, 6%, and 7%. So this massive, roughly half of liberals and leftists, because of the content they're consuming, think there are thousands of people killed every year by law enforcement that are unarmed and that are mostly or entirely black. Um, we saw a similar thing with COVID-19 where Bill Maher, of all people, did a great sort of roast routine for his audience where he pointed out that about, I think it's 41% of liberals, and again, these are the media consumers, believe that if you get COVID-19, you have at least a 50% chance of full-on going to the hospital or the ER, not to your doctor. Uh, another 28%, I think, thought the chance was between 21 and 
And in reality, COVID's tough, but we've both done serious research on this. Like the, the chance yeah. of actually getting hospitalized or dying, if you get COVID-19, was 1%. It was a 0.3% rate of death and like two or three times that for hospitalization. So I don't want to drone on with this forever. But, yeah, we, we've certainly seen that this sort of pop culture media, especially on the left, and this isn't a biased statement. This is just fact. Feeds people faulty information. And if they believe that information and they keep processing that information, that has consequences. Yeah, no, I mean, because, like I said, we're going to get into your article and commentary because this, and we, we saw this with, okay, with, you know, the stories about Asian Americans, you know, the increase mm-hmm. in crime and with Asian Americans. And, and the perception is left, you know, with these, is that this is a conspiracy of white supremacists that is causing this outbreak, or it's because Donald Trump once used, you know, used the word the Wuhan virus and that the Chinese caused the, the virus, which, by the way, is actually a true statement, <laughs> <laughs> which is the irony is that, that, I mean, you can't even disagree with the fact that it did originate in China. And, uh, and, and certainly, you know, again, we're getting your data because I think, you know, it's one of those things that we, you look and you ask yourself and you say to yourself, you know, how wrong can you be truly believe when you when you can look at the actual data and find out it's a lot more complicated than what you know as, we're, as you're about to show. This is Tom Donaldson with Will Riley here on the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse. Go, guys. Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn here. more money when they grow up? Of course, I. I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Wow, Jinx. (laughs) Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Yeah, Pretty obvious. Yeah, Yeah, so obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. This upcoming segment will be brought to you by Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, which has their Thursday chicken wing special. Uh, for boneless chicken, you can get one order. You get a second one free. I actually don't see the card. Don't forget. Pardon me? And, uh, uh, sorry, I'm talking about home. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, don't forget the ladies and gentlemen of Buffalo Wild Wings. The special is a sponsor of this particular segment featuring Dr. Will Riley of Kentucky State University. And while you're, why don't you go ahead, uh, Dr. Riley, uh, do a kind of a brief uh, a bio of yourself, including uh, your recent books. Sure, and no hate at all for Buffalo Wild Wings, which is probably my favorite American chicken place. Good to, good to have them as a sponsor. Um, so 
I'm Wilfred Riley. I'm an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, which is obviously a state-level university here in the Southeast, which is also a historically black college. Um, I write a lot about racial issues, also about some pretty wonky things like the prevention of war, uh, how that can be achieved. And I'm probably best known for the book Hate Crime, Hoax, and Taboo. And good to be back on the show. Obviously, we've we're discussing a range of things, but my understanding is one of them is this recent piece in Commentary Magazine about whether this narrative of Asian Americans being attacked is true. This what we're hearing a lot lately. All right, let's uh, let's first of all let's begin with the actual stats, which you okay. you quote in your article uh, the, the, from the Bureau of Justice Statistical Data. So, if you're an Asian American, what are the chances of you being attacked by a white individual, much less a white supremacist? Well, a, a white supremacist, the chances are basically zero. So the, the narrative here that we've been seeing pretty often from the usual, the usual offenders, at least on the left, both on the center right, CNN, MSNBC, is that there's a wave of attacks on Asian Americans, which is even kind of true, but that it is coming not from black people angry about small businesses being shut down during COVID or something like this, but from white supremacists. And there's virtually no evidence of that. I mean, in the article, I go through probably the hundred most prominent cases, and none of them involve white supremacists, Klansmen, people affiliated with the Hammerskins or the famous, you know, right-wing punk sort of groups. So none, literally. Um, your chances of being attacked by a white guy are pretty good, but that's just because there are a lot of white guys. Um, what we actually find is that crime against Asians is very diverse. So in 2018, which is the recent year you're referring to, um, 28% of all attacks on Asian Americans came from blacks. I think it was 25% that came from whites. 21% came from Hispanics and natives combined. And amazingly, only something like 20% came from Asians. So Asians were one of the few groups in the country where you had a really low rate of same race crime. It wasn't so much your wife trying to knife you or a gang shooting or something like that. It was these tough people of other groups beating you up and attacking you. And that's something we really don't see as much with non-Asian groups. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point because uh, if you look at, let's say, whites, whites are more likely, you know, if I, if I got the numbers right, about 70% of the time violent uh, activities are going to be, you know, by other whites. Hey, and, are you here to pick me up? And, oh. Yeah. So, and, uh, yeah. And, and so, it'll be, so, so basically what you got is, they, you know, some and same thing with blacks. You know, blacks are more likely to be attacked and killed by blacks. Whites are more likely to be attacked and killed by whites. But in the case of Asia, case at all, uh, why is that? Is it, do you have a, a rational reason for that? Yeah, the reason for that, I think, primarily is just that there's a very – and sorry if I seem a little confused. There's a lot going on here. I'm actually on my way to a TV shoot uh, as, as this happens. I just didn't want to miss this show. Okay. But um, the reason for that is that Asians have an extraordinarily low crime rate – um, very different from, say, blacks or southern whites or something like that. So if you're in a black community or a trailer park or anything of that kind, there's going to be enough crime that if someone attacks you, it's probably going to be someone in your own group. Whereas if you are uh, in a, a middle-class Asian community, if you're in one of the big city Chinatowns, there are going to be virtually no Asian muggers. So whoever attacks you is going to be from outside your group, outside your population. So that that's the reason why we see this unusual pattern with Asians. Okay. Well, yeah, 
that, that, like I said, well, that's a, that's an interesting point because, like I said, you don't see that. I mean, obviously, with whites versus whites, blacks versus blacks. Uh, but this the aspect that comes into play here is well, let me kind of throw this because you mentioned this before. You know, you know there. Are, I guess I hate to use the word there are whites, and then there are whites. For example, the whites who tend to live in, let's say, urban centers certainly are going to differ, let's say, from the whites that populate Frank, you know, you know let's use an example, Frankfurt, Kentucky, uh, mm-hmm. where you may, where you may see, let's say, a white on white crime significantly higher, uh, but there is a totally different, you know, cultural side between those two. Would I be right in that assessment? Yeah, I mean, you're obviously going to see very different rates of, quote-unquote, white crime between, uh, say, an urban Italian-American neighborhood or a Mexican-American neighborhood. Those would technically be whites in most models as versus, you know, a bucolic country town. And, again, there are a lot of things that get into why there's a higher average black crime rate. I mean, you know, I don't want to make any excuses. Some of it's that there are more criminals in the black community. We have a gang presence and so on. But a lot of it's these fairly simple things like age, where the average black person is an unbelievable, you know, 10 or 12 years younger than the average white guy. I mean, black people are much more urban community, so on. So just as those things determine how, you know, whites and blacks interact, they also are responsible for some of the stuff that we see with Asian Americans. All right. Um, now, so basically, how about talking about you have been doing research in high-profile cases that you've been studying. Now, how many have you studied, and what's been your results so far? Well, the result has been that most of the attackers are people of color, but again, the, the group is very diverse. So what, what I did was put together a data set of about 150 of the most high-profile of these cases. This is, again, in the commentary article that we're talking about. Because we kept hearing this white supremacy claim, and it seemed so unusual, but it was something that obviously was really worth checking out, really important. And what I found is that these attacks on Asian Americans tended to match the other attacks on Asian Americans that we were seeing, basically. So, I mean, you had... Uh, only about 40% of the attackers were white at all. And as I recall, I'd have to look at the piece that included Hispanics, uh, blacks were heavily represented. Again, obviously you have some unfortunate situations where two cousins get in a fight and they're both Asian. But the, the narrative wasn't just like whites sometimes commit crimes. I mean, some white groups like Southern Appalachian whites have crime rates that are on par with a lot of black groups. The narrative was that these are kind of white supremacists driven by Trump. No one was claiming this is sort of big city Italian thugs. And the, the white supremacist driven by Trump narrative just has no support. I mean, almost all these attacks took place in large blue cities. Um, the majority of them involved someone who was what you could describe as a career criminal. They'd done this before. They were a mugger. They were, they were the local robber, um, that kind of thing. And that, that's the pattern that you saw. And that's the pattern that you saw across all races, actually. All right. I don't, I don't think that would surprise anyone that hadn't been kind of brainwashed as to what crime looks like. All right. Um, yeah, that's what I mean, because like I said, I, I read, because I was fascinated by the whole piece because it goes back to getting the, the narrative. But here's the thing. Maybe a better question might be is if you use bad data or incorrect data, you're going to have bad and incorrect policies. And okay. certainly, And certainly if we get this wrong, you know, what's the policy, what's the policy, you know, and the point that you made in your article, you said, look, well, what do Asian Americans One left, need? coming back. Well, yeah. 
what they need is a complete, you know, what they need is more policing or more protection. Uh, uh, would that be uh, one of the interpretations, the correct interpretation of the article that you wrote in commentary? Yeah, well, the, what I said is that how you deal with this situation, what what the threat is really determines how we're going to respond to the threat, right? So if the threat to Asian yeah. Americans is from middle, middle-class white criminals that are attacking them for racial reasons, then you are going to have to look at some things, especially if some of those criminals are cops. I mean, you're going to have to look at reining in the, the right fringe of the Republican Party. Black Lives Matter might have some proper things to say about what to do with crooked police officers. And it would make sense to have almost a minority coalition against these these abusive Caucasians that are out there. If in reality, the people that are attacking Asians are just thugs, and it turns out that two-thirds of them are black, then the solution's a lot simpler. You need more cops on the streets and tough mixed neighborhoods. So there, there's a deep irony to seeing these signs like Black Lives Matter right next to Stop Asian Hate. If it turns out that most of the anti-Asian attackers are left-wing black guys, I mean, that, that's a pretty serious problem. That's a you call that cognitive dissonance. You could call it myth messaging, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Okay. Well, so basically, in effect, what you need is is sound police tactics and sound police uh, police. What you said, let's say, what we used to have in New York City uh, with the broken window theory. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, explain very briefly the broken window theory, and did and did you agree with that theory? Well, yeah, I do first agree with it. Uh, Broken windows theory is an extremely basic theory of policing, and it's the idea that when you don't enforce the law, you get more crime. So essentially the basis of broken windows theory – the basis of broken windows theory was that in the large urban areas, one of the causes of chaos was that people had stopped enforcing sort of the baseline laws. Um. Windows were shattered. Homeless people were all over the place. There were people selling drugs on the street corners, and that contributed to an environment where you had more, more serious crime. And broken windows policing has been validated over and over again that if you do things like shut down crack houses and so on, you'll see fewer serious crimes or illegal gambling dens, brothels, because those are also places where people get murdered, where people get stabbed and shot and so on. And we've pulled back from broken windows policing over the years. The idea is that it's somehow racist, for example. More young men and especially minorities tend to get arrested in these tough neighborhoods, and we can't have that, that kind of thing. I, I am a supporter. All right. Now, okay. now, the other aspect I want to kind of get into as well is that is on the is on the other side of the equation. We talk about educational issues, and you know, and I think this is kind of an interesting aspect because basically, you know, is what you're going to find is Asians do very well mm-hmm. on on education, much better than whites, and obviously uh, better than blacks and Hispanics. And so, very brief describe that differential and why you think it's there. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think there are a bunch of reasons for that. I'm not a, I'm not a geneticist when it comes to issues like this, so I don't, I don't think there are core racial differences between, say, Asians and Hispanics who are purely of, if you look at the past, you look at where nativos come from, of East Asian descent. I think that there are some pretty significant cultural issues. 
where if you look at Asian Americans, I mean, the big one to me is uh, father present. If you look at Asian Americans, the rate of illegitimacy there is, or whatever you want to call it, is about 10%. Uh, the highest figure I've ever seen is 17%. Whereas for urban whites, it's about 50%. Um, for urban black Americans, it's 72%. So, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for success in East Asian communities, and that's one of them. I will say that because of that, the whole East Asian success model is kind of a challenge to everybody else. So, I mean, when you hear people talk about white supremacy or white and black guys arguing about conflict in the schools, Asians are just kind of quietly kicking everybody's ass. I mean, that's true on the SAT, GRE, pretty much any metric you want to use. So that sometimes leads to some hostility toward Asians, and it also leads to the extreme success of Asian Americans in society. Yeah, and that, that is kind of a background time. narrative through all of this. Yeah. Uh, totally that thought that we're going to follow up on that. This is Tom Donaldson here with the Donaldson Files with uh, Will Riley here at the Bachelor News Radio uh, Network. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? One in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome below back to the Donaldson Files. Here's Tom Donaldson here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Don't forget you can listen to the podcast of this show on the following networks, not just on Block Talk Radio, but also on iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, and TuneIn.com. You can get this at any time at your convenience here as part of the Bachelor News Radio Network. And don't forget uh, this upcoming segment will be sponsored by Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, where you can get sports, wings, in your favorite adult beverage. And don't forget, tonight is the NBA playoffs. So if you want to go enjoy a good meal, good chicken wings, have a couple of drinks, and enjoy some great basketball, Buffalo Wild Wing is for you. All right. Okay. Now, let's kind of follow up on okay, the point you're making here is that there's a cultural side in this. Let me ask this question in this way. Okay. Even if you look at the past history, let's say, for example, blacks, and certainly in the early, I mean, Tom Solwell made this case when you look at the late 19th, you know, after slavery and going into the 20th century, that you saw a, a dynamic where you basically saw 
you know, people who were illiterate from slavery suddenly become totally illiterate. Uh, over a period a of my, pardon me? Oh, sorry. I'm I'm in a well, taxi now or an Uber oh, actually. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been traveling this entire so, time we've been talking actually. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. So yeah. So how, so how is the Uber drive? It's good. The, the driver's a pro. Things are going well. I mean, it's uh, originally when you called, yeah. I was in my house and I was getting ready to go to uh, Louisville, and I'm now on my way to Louisville, so I'm uh, I'm on the highway. Ah, okay. Well, right. the question would be, you know, in the history of Tom Stone, when he talks about it, is that you saw the mm-hmm. greatest, probably one of the greatest accomplishments, where literally people went from being illiterate within a period of two generations to being fairly literate. Right, right. So this is something. This was something that's obviously was part of the culture that existed. And let me ask you this question. Has, you know, is it missing today? Is it strictly to say, you know, we talk about single female household, but is there something else out there that suddenly is discouraging what, let's say, was encouraged, let's say, a generation or two ago? Yeah, well, I, I think, first of all, one of the benefits of thinking that performance differences are due to culture as opposed to either genes like the racist or racism like the crit, like the CRT person, everything is due to, you know, the white man or whatever. The benefit of not believing that is that you can change culture. You can't really change your genes or even your enemies all that, all that easily. So, I mean, you're absolutely right that when – and this would be, by the way, only to a lesser extent true for Irishmen or women or whatever, and many, many oppressed groups throughout history. I mean, uh, slaves in Latin America. But when black Americans were released from slavery by that integrated Union Army, I mean, the literacy rate among black men was – so you might correct this, but something like 8%. So everything that was achieved in the two generations to come, the civil rights movement – I mean, the defeat of Bull Connor-style racism in the South, the establishment of those HBCUs that didn't already exist, that was achieved by people who decided to change that background and culture and go compete with the people that had been their enemies and now were their opponents and their countrymen. Uh, are people less motivated than that today? I mean, I would say the sh- there, there are fewer great men among both blacks and whites and everybody else today than there used to be, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. I mean, is there as much training and that kind of accomplishment? I mean, or as many men going to military academies or as many people of all backgrounds, you know, reading the great books. Um, I think in the case of the black community, though, one very definite change was uh, the implementation of kind of mass, you could call it pay per child welfare in the 1960s and the 1970s, which really took dads out of the home. And that's, that's what destroyed that sort of family stability that made a lot of the earlier stuff like establishing colleges more possible. Uh, this isn't just a problem for black Americans. I mean, again, the out-of-wedlock birth rate is 40, 50 percent for whites. So we're starting to see these national problems that are affecting how functional really the whole country is to some extent. And that's, I mean, if, yeah. if you're American, you live here, how to worry you. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, so the thing is, I can, you know, I can always remember Patrick Monaghan's famous uh, benign neglect, neglect when he talked about this. And he did it at a time when, quite honestly, the single female, the three out of every four blacks had two family houses. Mm-hmm. And he, he said that was going to, and he would say that's an issue because we, you know, that's, you know, and he said there was an alarm there. Well, today it's almost like, as you say, the complete reverse of that. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing some of the impact on that. And it certainly matters in the cultural side of the equation. Now, let's. Briefly go into because you've talked about this before, but I'm sitting here in front of the numbers, and 
for a race for a society, and we'll get into critical race theories in a couple few minutes here. But I'm sitting there looking at some of the top uh, demographics by end. Uh, number yeah. one is Indian Amer- Indian American, Taiwanese American, Filipino Americans are number four, South African Americans, which could be black yeah. or white. Uh, uh, number seven, Indonesian American. Number eight, is Pakistanis. Nine is Iranian Americans, Lebanese Americans. Mm-hmm. And you go through this list. Okay, number 15, Japanese Americans. Uh, and even when you get down to, let's say, even, you know, look at uh, Nigerian and, and West Africans like Ghana and Nigeria. All of these have incomes above the average white and also above the national average. So... I guess the question is, you know, what kind of racist society will allow that to happen? Yeah, I mean, so most of the comparisons that are used to show, quote, unquote, the USA is an extraordinarily racist society in today, not in 1936 when we were, most of them consist of taking what you'd call direct bivariate comparisons between whites and blacks and saying, look at this gap between two of the world's great races. What could this be but racism? And that sounds convincing. So, I mean, when people do this, they'll take the SAT and they'll say the white score is at 1118 and the black score even today is a little under 1,000. It's like 950. What could that be but some kind of hidden racism in the test? The problem with this, first of all, that could be a whole bunch of things. It could be the amount of time different kids study for the test. It could be father present. Um, are, you, are you more likely to go to school at a tough urban area? What's the comparison between the black and the Puerto Rican or the Italian-American score? But, I mean, leaving aside what could be the case, the analogy totally falls apart if you just throw in another group, which is Asians. So if you add in uh, East Asians, South Asians, I think even some uh, North Africa, but Moroccans may, may fall into this group. But if you throw in that, that MENA category, that Asian category, those groups outperform blacks and whites on the test. The Asian score is an 1181 versus team for whites. So we don't want to get too wonky here, but I mean, that in and of itself completely defeats the claim. If the claim is that, you know, the gap must be due to racism or you're a racist, you can just say, well, what about these six other races? And yeah, the data you just brought up there, I mean, um, I'm surprised that East Indian Americans looks like knocked out Jewish Americans from the top slot. But yeah, like Iranians, that's the Persians, I mean, are right up there. Um, yeah, so I, mean, we don't need, I don't need to go through the list to give us Filipinos, Chinese Americans. That, that's just reality. So every time you take these simplistic comparisons between, say, whites and blacks or whites and Native Americans, and you ask just another basic follow-up question, like how are Nigerians doing? Or if you want to talk about whites, do Caucasian, Mexican Americans, or Italian Americans, do they beat black people? This, this becomes revealed as something much more complicated. Racism may still account for 5% or whatnot in a particular model, but just as with biological sex, right? Like if you point at these giant income differences between men and women or between different ethnic groups and you don't adjust for things like age or whether people are working, it doesn't make sense. It's just political. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. okay. Uh, that, like I said, this is to me uh, – what I want to kind of – first of all, let me ask this question. Define – if somebody said to you, define critical race theory. What's a what's your definition? How do you? What would my definition be of critical race theory? Yes, critical race theory is essentially the Marxist or the communist theory of economics, but with rich people replaced as like the big bad or the final video game boss by white people. 
So the, the core of Marxist economic theory is that all of what look like facially neutral systems, like property rights, things that we're just used to seeing all around us, like, oh, that's, you know, Mr. O'Leary or Mr. Dederosian's field, um, those are, in fact, set up to benefit certain people, i.e., the rich, for example. Only the rich can afford to have property, so the rich wrote property law. And this goes on, and some of it's good and some of it's nonsense, but that's critical theory. The, the basic claims of critical theory are that facially neutral systems are set up to oppress people. One, uh, any disparities in performance indicate some kind of oppression, i.e., like the workers, the proletariat, aren't less educated than the rich because of smarts. It's because that's how the school system was designed. And three, the solution is something dramatic and sweeping. Uh, it's usually communism if you talk to a Marxist. But it can sometimes just be equity. You know, people from each class or each region have to be represented absolutely proportionally in the ruling class. Um, and critical race theory is literally just that, but with rich people taken out and replaced with white people. So the idea is that all the systems in the USA, intelligence testing, policing, are set up to benefit this white ruling class, one. Uh, two, you can tell this racism exists because there are gaps on things like standardized testing or crime rates. And so the solution is equity. So uh, my guy, Ibram Kendi, argues that there should be a federal department of equity. Every time that we see a field doesn't have proportional representation of, say, black Americans or women or something like that, there should be essentially an investigation launched, and the general solution would be making sure there are exactly as many, you know, female welders by the end of a certain time period. So, or I guess the Hispanic ones, to stick with critical race theory. But that's what CRT is. All critical theories are essentially the same, and the focus of all of them is that the system we live in, democratic capitalism or whatever you want to call it, is badly corrupt. So basically, it's the, yeah, so, yeah, so basically in the case of critical race theory, it's all white folks' fault. And it's kind of like a double-edged. So let me throw this question because the impression I always would get is like it's a two-headed, you know, two-headed coin. Namely, if I flip one side, I'm a racist. If I flip the other side, you can't be a racist, <laughs> and I'm still a racist. And so I guess, so that you know, and so I guess the, the point, I, you know, I find that to be like I say, it, it's kind of an interesting aspect because now it's becoming part of what the the curriculum is going to be in most high most element you know most schools today and i think to me the damage that could be done by such a theory not the least of which you know you know the further dividing of americans i'm going to you know we're going to kind of follow up on this and a little bit more here on the donaldson files with you know, uh, professor will riley here on the bastard news radio network you might know me on 50 cent you may follow my tweets my Facebook friends, odds are few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the 
Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome back to the Johnson Files. This is Tom Donaldson here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Don't forget you can listen to our podcast uh, on the following networks, iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, or AskTuneIn.com. All of those great uh, – so you can listen to this show and other shows at your convenience. At your convenience. So on those particular networks, we thank you very much for your support. And Okay, let me let me throw this back to you this way, all right? Yeah. Yeah. When you the problem I kinda of say with identity politics is there's always going to be a pecking order. And if you're at the bottom of the pecking order, somewhere along the line, when do you make that decision? You know, maybe this coalition's not for me. I mean I look at Asian Americans and and essentially uh, you know, Ivy League schools have been caught discriminating against them, basically putting a quota on that. You, know, you go look at like in New York City, for example, in charter schools, you know, where let's say they, you know, you have to pass a certain test to get into a specific school, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, you know, they want to eliminate those tests because Asian Americans tend to predominate in all of those tests. But we're now seeing university systems eliminate uh, SAT scores and act you know, and you know the various ACTs and SAT scores because when you know certain minorities do worse on it, other minorities like Asian Americans do better. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first question comes to play is number one, how does a coalition stay together when you basically say that affects certain groups of your own we can discriminate against? Uh, your thoughts. How does you asked how does all this stay together as a system? Yeah, how would I mean, how do you do? Because if I'm an Asian American, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, if why would I vote Democratic, which most of them have done over the past two or three election cycles? When a they're basically saying we can discriminate against you, uh, we're going to basically make it easier for others at your expense to get into the universities, get into the top and charter schools, uh, you know. When we look at crime, the reality is is that you know people of color are more likely to attack you than whites, and that many of the communities, the policing, the defunding of the policing is basically eliminating your protection. So yeah, the question yeah. Would be is, well, how well does I, I don't think stay? that it does stay together all that coherently. I mean, so. CRT was developed in kind of a simpler time. If you look at, you know, Fanon writing this globally, or you look at some of the black American radicals in the 60s, they were essentially looking at a system that was divided between, say, black and white, or between oppressed third world people, as they would have been called then, and Westerners. So the argument was it's fairly easy to look at these gaps between people and attribute them to, to racism or to conflict. Today, I, obviously, it's a bit more difficult because if you actually look at who performs best on the things you're describing, standardized tests to get into charter schools, it's not whites at all. 
I mean, the four or five highest performing groups would be, you know, Asians, South Asians, Jewish Americans, West Africans like Nigerians, and so on down the line. Um, I, I don't really think critical race theory types have yet come up with a response to this. The one that they seem to be leaning toward is trying to define these groups as white. So, I mean, there's been a fair amount. I wrote an article about this, actually, because one of the largest school districts in Washington found that they had an entire curriculum based around this idea that white supremacy explained grading advantages and things like this. And when they actually looked at their students, they found that the student body was more than 10% Asian, and the Asian kids were the highest performing kids in the school. And what they did was just jump the, lump the Asian and the white kids together and then release the exact same press document that said things like students of color, which had then been defined to be just blacks and Hispanics and some American Indians, um, underperform, you know, students of non-color by X percent. So that, that's an approach that's been taken on, and this isn't a one-off, it's been taken on more than a few times. But the basic question of how do you convince everyone in this giant group that you've just sort of labeled non-white that they have the same interest, that's actually pretty tough. I mean, when a black guy in L.A. walks into a Korean guy's store, they don't necessarily slap each other on the ass and say something like, hey, teammate. You know, there, there are a massive series of different perspectives there. And that's also true among white people, by the way. Like, I'm, I'm obviously not an advocate for white interests. I happen to be a black guy. But like, it's pretty stupid to take a group that includes, on the one hand, Appalachian guys, and on the other and Cajun-American guys, people that have struggled as much as anyone in the country, and on the other hand, you know, the coastal elite in New England, and say, well, the, these people are the whites. So my short answer as an opponent would be, I don't, I don't think this holds together very well at all. But it, it has a sort of first-glance value to it. I mean, like, Dr. Kendi, again, is very good at presenting these arguments where he'll say, look, we, we see that there's a 200-point test score gap. You can either believe that's due to genes or you can believe that's due to racism. Now, are you a racist? And a lot of people don't really get beyond that to the actual complicated reality that that gap is due to things like age, you know, region of residence, is your father present, how much did you study? That, that's tougher, and you don't normally encounter that until, say, maybe college. And college is leaning pretty far left these days, too. Yeah, well, yeah, because this to me is like the, the, the entire flaw. I'm looking at this, and I, you know, I, I see this. Uh, you know, I see this from a political perspective. I'm asking myself, you know, these are questions I'm asking because you have a pecking order within this critical race theory, and Asians mm. are basically at the bottom of that order, but even Hispanics. You know, in some ways, I, I, I go back to the Trevon Martin George Zimmerman case, and, whether, you know, and I'm not here to recast that case, except the one thing that always struck me was George Zimmerman, who is Hispanic, and he actually had, he also had some black blood in him. They used the phrase white Hispanic. It was almost <laughs> as if, yeah, I, I remember that, and it was like, wow. You know, if I, and again, if I was in Florida, living in Florida, and I was Hispanic and Democrat, my first question would be, well, you know, where am I in the pecking order? Because they just, they just declared me as white or white Hispanic, whatever that is. But, and, I, you know, and, and, and you're making the same case here is that Asians are now going to get grouped with whites when it comes to performances to get, the, you know, get that data that they want to have. And not have to deal with the fact that you got selected people of color who do very well, and do very well, whether let's say they're 
West Africans, Caribbean Africans, uh, or South Asian or East Asian. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, go ahead. No, no, I mean, a, a lot of people have written about this. I mean, the conservative commentator Ben Shapiro jokingly calls it the great intersectional hierarchy of dominance, like he's talking about a chart in a biology class, the food chain, or something like that. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, so the core argument of all hard left philosophies, because, I mean, I'm left-wing on some things like healthcare, but by that I mean like Marxist, communist, socialist. The core element of all hard left philosophies is this idea that people almost invariably get rich or get successful by ripping off the people who are poor and unsuccessful and seem to be failing. This is like the great triple axle of radicalism. And again, you see this with Fanon, you see this with third world philosophy. You know, Haiti would be one of the world's most powerful nations had the West not exploited it. You, you see a somewhat more legitimate version of this brought in with Israel versus Palestine, but this is, this is true throughout a bunch of different, different arenas of debate. Anyway, getting to the point, if, if you accept this idea that success implies corruption or success implies dishonesty, that's not just something that can be used to target whites. Because, again, the issue is, and I'm going to keep repeating this as a you know, proud ethnic guy, the issue is that many ethnic groups, Asians, South Asians, Jews, black Africans, outperform white. But the problem is that, that while that should be a source of pride for POC and while everyone should just go back to competing with another, one another, it's very easy to take that from the Marxist framework and frame that as, well, there must be something wrong with these brown people. And that, that's how you get the Asians just sort of classified as white or you get people talking about model minority privilege, uh, so on down the line. You get sometimes more hostility toward Asians than to Caucasians. Because if you actually believe that just succeeding means you're an oppressor, I mean, the most oppressive people in the country wouldn't be Appalachian white guys, right? I mean, they would be Asian guys, Jewish guys, Nigerian guys, all those people working for Wall Street banks. So it, it is an issue if you want to take this seriously as a philosophy. And I mean, by the way, this, this goes beyond just race. I mean, right now we're in, you know, like the freshman year seminar stuff. This also goes into the, you know, 75 possible genders and, you know, men versus women, rich versus poor. I mean, they're an infinite variation of these critical theories or an infinite number of variations on the same theme, I guess, to use proper grammar. But I mean, like critical feminist yeah. theory is the idea you basically just replace, you know, the rich with men. You know, post-colonial theory is not to me, that's probably the most ridiculous of these. But post-colonial theory is you replace the rich with Westerners. And you now have the Journal of Fat Studies, which has tens of thousands of subscribers. The, the great oppressor there, and I'm, I'm not saying this is a joke, but would be healthy, fit people, you know, pretty privileged. So it, there's an infinite number of variations on this. And, yes, they all do contribute to at least a potential pecking order. Yeah, you're absolutely right on this score because this is the thing I find, you know, in a way, somewhat irritating because now it's become the very focus of the curriculum. You know, this is now the curriculum people are being taught in colleges. This is a curriculum that they're now trying to encourage in high school. And and I see nothing, and basically what I see is the, you know, it's not just the, the division of the United States into particular groups, but we're treating the entire society as a zero-sum game. I You know, you know I only... You know, I become rich at your expense, as opposed to, you know, I became rich because I developed something that maybe you found useful and were willing to buy and participate with. 
And, and once we get to that point of zero sum, and then, then we're basically talking about, you know, you know, from a societal point of view, no growth anywhere. And we're basically sharing a shrinking pie. Uh, now, you're also part of an organization called 1776 Unites. Uh, so kind of tell brief, because you kind of educate people on that and how you guys differ from, let's say, the 1619 project. Sounds good. Yeah, well, we differ pretty dramatically from the 1619 project, which to some extent were a direct uh, counter to. 1776 began as the black business and social science community's response to 1619, although we've grown uh, well beyond that. But when the 1619 project first dropped, and you're talking about a full issue of the New York Times Magazine and so on, a lot of people, particularly a lot of minority academics, were looking at this and pretty rapidly said, this doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, the claim that the Civil War was fought to, or the Revolutionary War even, was fought to preserve slavery, um, the claim that everything unique in the USA came from slavery, bringing up the Irish, obvious question of you know, Irish or Pakistani immigration, well, what does that mean? You know, racism is in America's DNA, so on down the line. A lot of this was false. So we wrote a couple of essays, we put together a book of white papers, and we responded. But we found that there was a lot of interest in the USA from people, white and black, who were by no means racist, but that wanted a non-painfully woke take on American race relations. You know, who are the great black heroes that fought back successfully against segregation? You know, we hear constantly the Union Army was integrated when it broke the Confederates. You know, who are some of those black soldiers, those Irishmen? You know, what are, what are some of the inventions yeah. by minorities or by women? So we ended up putting together a school curriculum. Uh, we had an academic curriculum that's for uh, primary, secondary school. There's a full-on professional website, www.1776unites.com. We also own the .org. But, I mean, essentially, if you go there, what you'll find is an honest but patriotic take on American history. You'll find all our speakers available to be booked and so on. You'll find the opinions from columnists like me on issues of the day, you know, right on some, left on others. And you'll find our books, so on. We actually, in a blatant plug, we have a book called Red, White, and Black uh, dropping in two days. I'll actually be in uh, Washington, D.C. tomorrow for the release ceremony for that, which is part of the reason I'm traveling today doing these TV shoots. But it, it's going to be quite an event. We're going to give some speeches. We're going to have some you know, lefty friends of the group debate us. And I think one of those smaller networks, C-SPAN 2 or something like that, is going to, not, not at all critical, is going to be in attendance. That is 1776 Unites, pro-black, pro-American. Okay, uh, okay, the book Black, Red, White, and Black, is, that, uh, is this like a series of essays and articles from various people within the organization? Is that how that would yeah, be? Right. Yeah, red, white, and black, which really should be called, uh, you know, red, white, brown, and black, because we have, you know, Middle Eastern and Hispanic and so on contributors, but uh, is is a series of essays on different topics. I mean, one is a response to 1619, but we don't we don't just talk about that in the book. I discuss the reality of slavery in the USA and historically. I mean, obviously, everyone had slaves until a few modern nations. It's not even fair to say the West, but a few countries like Britain ended the practice. So I, I discuss that. My essay is kind of wonky, actually. I, I need some more academically focused publications this year. But um, you've got Bob Woodson talking about, if I recall correctly, the black church. You've got people discussing the issues with the Black Lives Matter movement, i.e. The, the big one for me there, although it's not my essay, but is, is the focus totally on police violence as opposed to 
black on black crime or white on black crime or the other, you know, 98% of crime, but it, it's a full on professional book. Um, the publisher would be considered perhaps a public intellectual rather than academic publisher, but pretty well known. And yeah, that's, that's going to be released this week. So that's, that's the latest thing we're interested in, but we've gotten a whole range of offers across the board. Um, something I'd be interested in here in Kentucky is black and Appalachian men. Uh, we don't have any charters in the state right now. Hmm. Oh, okay. That's a, yeah. Well, like I said, so this book, actually, I'm looking right here on the Barnes & Noble website, and it's listed as uh, that will be available on uh, barnesandnoble.com, and I'm going to assume amazon.com as well. Um, now, will they, is there other places other than bookstores? Can they get it through you know, directly from the, 16, I mean, from the 1776 project? And if so, how could they order that? Yeah, the book should be available on the website. Now, I mean, yeah, we're all doing pretty well, and I always encourage people whenever possible to, you know, use the local merchant and so on. But uh, this, this plain fact is that this will be available. This book is number one in social sciences right now. If you go to Amazon and you Google red, white, and black, I mean, you'll see it's number one in African-American demographic studies, which has to be uh, pissing off Sean King and Patrice Colors and so on because it's the direct response. But, I mean, it's number one in social sciences. This, this is a serious book. So it, it's available pretty much everywhere, Amazon, Goodreads, and so on. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to seeing how it does. Hopefully it doesn't beat my books. <laughs> well, that's how, like, I said, like I said, it sounds like a very interesting book. And, it, and I guess I've, you know, and I've been always fascinated with the 1776 Unite organization because I look at, you know, what you guys, you know, the, the Fox, you know, I, I've mentioned this before, but I have never seen – a think tank or a group of people that put together with the kind of intellectual firepower that you guys have put together, you know, under one Rob Woodson. It's just, I'm just overly, they may I look at this and I said, my God, this is a think tank, a think tank, a think tank. This is the think tank, <laughs> if, if you want to use those words. But I want to, you know, like I said, so I wanted to kind of, because I would love to have, let's say, some of the other individuals from that group on our show to explore some of these topics uh, further. And I want to thank you very much. So which television show are you going to be on? Right now I'm hitting into, I guess this would just be the news, uh, the 5 p.m., uh, 7 p.m. Fox News, what is it? Primetime on Fox with, I believe, Kill Me, essentially the evening news. Oh, okay. Well, so you should be able, okay, if, you're, so- if you're watching the Fox version, as opposed to NBC or MSNBC this evening, I'll be, I'll be on the news talking about how politicians shouldn't say racist things. Whenever I get something that's completely neutral that I can say on the air, I'll usually take it. All right. Sounds good. Well, listen, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, this is Professor Will Riley, uh, the author of your uh, books, Taboo and Hate, uh, Hate Crime Hoax, and soon to be one of the contributors to Red, White, and Black, all available at uh, local bookstores and uh, various uh, sites like Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Riley, for joining us. Uh, Good luck with your show tonight. Take care. Thanks, as always, for having me on. Love doing it. Bye. All right.
Okay, we want to welcome everyone to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, we know everyone could be doing many other things, but you decided to take the time to tune in to one of the hottest podcast shows where we talk about topics that are related to the minority community and policing. And so we've got a, a another great topic that we're going to be talking with uh, our listeners about, um, and it's going to be related to the uh, the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa uh, race massacre. So without further ado, I need to bring on and introduce my esteemed host of the show that goes by the name of Chief Swag. How you doing today, brother? What's going on, brother? I'll tell you what, man. I, I will... I'll be proud to be the co-host with you today, man, to talk about such a important part of our of Black history. So we're, history. We're co-host. Yeah. I'm a co-host today. I'm a co-host. Today. <laughs> All right. Well, I tell you what. You know, I I am uh, excited about this topic uh, to talk about uh, a part of history, Keith. That I tell you uh, has has for the most part been kind of swept as they say, swept under the rug, under the carpet. Um, and and I'll share something with you briefly, Keith. Uh, you know, I, when I was uh, finishing up my degree, I uh, had a class on American history, um, and the professor uh, sent me a, a message back saying that my paper was, was full of fabrications that he doesn't, see where any of this stuff actually took place in Tulsa. Uh, just, I mean, and basically said, hey, you need to rewrite your paper. If not, I'm going to give you an F. And so I, I, I basically had to share with him a lot of things that, it, it surprisingly, Keith, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you the professor, you got the master's, uh, and you the history teacher, but you don't have any knowledge, real knowledge of the Tulsa uh, race massacre. And I, and I and I believe from uh, from uh, perspective of, of of white individuals, it, it's just a part of history that they just care not to even really acknowledge. I, and I'll so, tell you, I think, yeah, and, and you know what, that's that's a shame, man, that, that you have a professor that would tell you that you are lying, that you would take a chance on uh, being discredited and, and taking a chance on not graduating to tell you to go back and rewrite a paper that you're trying that's factual. And yeah. and you know, really and truly, man, that's 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 only one massacre uh during this during that era uh that occurred, you know, during Arkansas, Elaine, Arkansas. Elaine, uh, yep, exactly. Massacre. And, and so there's others throughout the throughout history uh, that have occurred in, in, in towns like Ferguson I'm sorry, not Ferguson, but Stanford, uh, Florida, and, uh, and and other places. So you know, this is this is history, man. You know, we we have to. We're gonna if we're gonna learn, we have to be honest about things that have occurred. Uh, we we can't just try to hide that stuff. So that's very uh, discouraging, disheartening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, Keith, here in Oklahoma, uh, the governor. Uh, uh, recently signed a bill limiting uh, public education and higher education from talking about 
uh, race in the classroom, and not just specifically the Tulsa race massacre, uh, but uh, these topics they did not want they do not want these topics to be talked about amongst uh, black children, uh, Native Americans, Latinos, whites. Uh, they just feel that this is a topic that. Uh, in 2021 and, and moving forward in history that should not be brought up and should not be talked about. And so um, the governor set on the Tulsa Race Ride uh, Commission. Uh, the, uh, he was uh, removed from that commission, or he actually took himself away from that commission under some pressure. So Oklahoma is, is uh, and, and specifically Tulsa, uh after a century of the of the race massacre uh Tulsa is uh, has to confront uh the the bloody past it's almost kind of like the the bloody sunday that took place in in Selma but here in Tulsa Keith you know over a thousand and some business were destroyed uh which was called Black Wall Street over over 300 people were were murdered they wasn't killed they were murdered by uh, an angry mob, and, and and I'll share this with our listeners, Keith, and as we go along, hopefully, if you have not heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre, uh, please search uh, and Google Tulsa Race Massacre and see the images. Uh, I think a lot of people, I know, Keith, when I was growing up in, in, uh, in school, I never heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, and, and so, I, and a lot of other people I've talked to around, uh, not just in Oklahoma, New Mexico, where I'm from, but Texas, a lot of people are not really aware of the Tulsa massacre. Well, you know, you know, Virgil, I think the thing that gets me the most, man, is that, you know, in, in listening to what Stitt said and, and uh, what uh, several governors have said is that they don't want it to seem as though you have one uh uh, race of or, or ethnicity uh, thinking that another ethnicity is 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 bad and blaming mm-hmm. one ethnicity yeah. for the um, horror that occurs. So, but history is history. You, you can't it hide is. history, man. And so that's that's yeah. a shame that you have one person who can sign a piece of paper and basically wipe out history and say that. I'm going to protect a certain group of people who look like me because I don't want people to think bad uh, based on actual facts that occurred. Yeah, yeah, it, and that's so true, Keith. And and you know, and and one of the things that we're going to get into in this topic is how law enforcement failed to protect the 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 thousands of Tulsa's uh, black residents from this mob and the fact that. You know, I think a lot of people, if you don't know about the Tulsa massacre, uh, this actually started from an allegation that a young man um, assaulted a white lady in an elevator. And it, to this it goes day, back to similar to similar to Emmett Till. Only thing Emmett Till yeah. wasn't mm-hmm. was an allegation wasn't wasn't physical. His was basically a gesture. Uh, let yeah. me say this real quick, Virgil. You know, when, when, when Stitt signed that, what's the difference between perjury? We know that perjury is when you lie. It's, it's awesome. So what's the difference between him signing that document 
that's false than actually standing up lying? What's the difference? Yeah. No, no, no. no. I mean, again, you know, you, you don't want your children or other children to hear about things that took place in, in, in 1921 that murdered 300 black people and just destroyed uh, the, the, you know, Tulsa's Black Wall Street. And, uh, and so you just you want to wipe it away from history. You know it, it exists, but you don't want young people to learn any more about history. So history doesn't repeat itself. And so that that's one of the the sad things about uh, this this law that was signed. And, uh, and and there's a lot of people that are a lot of educators. A lot of educators have came out against this new piece of legislation, and they've been pretty vocal about it. Even uh, the two largest school district in Oklahoma, Tulsa Public Schools as well as Oklahoma City Public Schools, have came out. Their superintendents have came out. Uh, against uh, the governor signing this bill. So, Keith, um, there's a lot uh, of, of history that uh, people just want to ignore and forget about. But, you know, hey, we're getting ready to come up on our first break, Keith, and I want to remind our listeners that uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, the call-in number to the show is 646-929-0130. And please go to our Facebook page and follow us, like us, uh, on Facebook at You and the Law One, and uh, you can follow us on Instagram at You uh, underscore and the Law, and you can follow us on Twitter at You and the Law One. So, Keith, we're going to take this break, man. We're going to come back and get into this topic about the Tulsa race massacre. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Dermarest, the psoriasis solution, asks, "What's complete freedom? For me, it's an open road with the top down." It's my bare arms getting warmed by the sun. It's my bare arms without a trace of psoriasis. Complete Freedom, brought to you by the complete relief of Dermarest psoriasis. Unlike brands which only relieve itching and inflammation, Dermarest psoriasis also removes the embarrassing scales, allowing healthy skin to grow. Healthy skin? That's complete freedom. Dermarest, the psoriasis solution. Welcome back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News uh, Radio Network, WCOM, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and of course, um, IBM TV, soon to come. Uh, 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with Chief Keith Humphrey and Chief Virgil Green, uh, talking about the horrible massacre <clears throat> in, in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, back in 1921. Uh, coming up on the 100th anniversary of this, uh, guys have a comment, and then I had a, a question. I can give you the question. I'll give you the comment first. Um, my comment to you is uh, to what uh, basically you guys were alluding to going into the break, and that is 
people don't want to, namely black people don't want to deal with pain, that kind of pain. As I've said on your show and others in the past, um, we're more uncomfortable talking about race and things of this nature than other races. And it happened to us, Black Wall Street, the deaths, the, the businesses torn down. Um, we've seen this in Rosewood in Florida uh, and other mm-hmm. places across the country. So um, until we come to grips with our own history, as painful as it is, and, and talk about it and champion it in a way that's going to bring some forth of uh, uh, justice, then it'll be like this. Uh, we did get a question from Sarah uh, in uh, New Mexico who asked, is there any museum there in Tulsa regarding this, similar to the Jews with the Holocaust and certainly the African-American Museum um, in D.C.? Well, and that's a great question, Sarah. And, and this there is a museum that is going to be opening or has or may already be open that uh is going to uh go through the whole history of Greenwood, go through the history of, of Tulsa Wall Street. Um it's it's you know, and I have to go back uh LA and to our listeners. Uh, if everybody remember the Oklahoma City bombing that took place at the uh, federal building, uh, some years after the, the, the that horrible uh, incident that took place, uh, there was a, um, a memorial was built. There's a museum that was built, um, and that was just probably within a decade after the uh, the bombing of the federal building here in Oklahoma City. So almost 100 years later, uh, now there is a museum that's being opened to recognize uh, and, and for people can, under, can get more information about what took place in Greenwood and what took place with the Tulsa massacre. So, and I'll say this, uh, L.A., to listen, I think the Tulsa community have been very, very vocal, very outspoken uh, with the history of what took place in Greenwood, uh, and I and, and I bel- and I'm going to say that they have made this a point with the officials in Tulsa. Uh, they haven't let it just die, and and so they have they have stayed on top of this. Those ancestors of, of people that were killed and those who survived uh, to make sure that uh, Tulsa did something to recognize. Uh, the lives that were lost and the property that were lost. And I think, you know, when you go back and you look at images, uh, L.A. and our listeners, I think, you know, and Keith, you know, you see streetcars driving down the street. You see just a uh, a vibrant uh, community that is thriving. And, you know, there's uh, in Oklahoma, there's a handful of black communities and uh, one of those black communities I served in as a police chief, uh, which is about 65 miles south of, of Tulsa, uh, another historical black community. And in, in, in that county, you know, Fusky County, they have some history that people don't want to talk about. And so um, there's just a lot of things that 
that have taken place that um, uh, people just want to ignore the the past. But uh, if if you if you are listening, if you even get a chance to go to Tulsa, uh, definitely go to this museum that's in the Greenwood uh, district. And this weekend, coming up Monday, and, and let me say this, Keith, you know, for for 12 years I served as police chief in Bowling, Oklahoma, which is an historical black community, and we have a there's a rodeo every Memorial Day weekend. I had no idea until recently that this massacre actually took place on that Memorial Day weekend, May the 31st, going into to June the 1st. And so, um, it, it and it was never it it has never really been talked about even in this black community in Bowley, Oklahoma, that's some sixty five miles north of us, that there was a massacre being that took place on a day that people are uh, celebrating Memorial Day weekend. And Chief uh, Humphrey, if I could just ask you um, just to add to that, you know. When the Oklahoma City bombing took place, the excuse is that, and I, I'm not, I mean no disrespect into people who want to have a memorial for people who died, especially in the massive numbers of that, but the excuse was it was a federal building, so okay, the feds get involved. Nobody really did anything for Rosewood. Uh, you have the limitations in Tulsa, albeit that people want something bigger there in terms of bringing forth the, the understanding and recognition. Um but let, with all due respect to our Jewish friends, brothers and sisters, let somebody say the Holocaust never happened and people will go in and upraise and out, be outraged. And they, they have everything. So I, I, speaking for me, I think it comes back to who we are as a people. You know, they gave us the black, the, the African-American museum because they gave us Dr. King. And, of course, on Dr. King Day, you get all the, uh, you know, uh, free at last and the, 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 the nice speeches. But if you go to the African-American museum, they don't have, uh, in my opinion, the, the, the horrific things going back to the Middle Passage until even up to modern day times, they don't have all that stuff. They have a lot of, you know, black people in history, the inventions and things of that nature. They have some some horrific stuff in there, but I don't think uh, not enough because, again, it goes back to the optics. If if it's deemed dangerous or upsetting or, you know, uh, militant in any shape or form in this country, and the, anything black, then they, they pull back. They won't let us have it, or we won't. They'll fight us to get it. Um, and that's just my two cents on the Chief Humphrey. Yeah, I think sometimes, man, things are, things are, things are, are passed or approved to appease, uh, to appease African-Americans. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll give you this uh, and don't ask for anything else, or we'll do this. We will... Uh, we'll we'll make a deal with you uh, if you do this. But you know, if you're going to talk about African American history, you got to talk about it all. You got to talk about from the first time, uh, first day when when we were brought over from Africa, and and you know and sold and and and, and the tragedies that happened to the how families were separated. You know, I think a lot of times we as a whole, not as a whole, but there are some of us that that want to forget that want to forget about those things that happen. But you know what? Think about this, L.A. and Bergland, to the listeners. Uh, if, if those things had not happened, 
and you would not have had uh, massacres like Tulsa and Rosewood uh, and, and you know, Emmett Till. Uh, none of us would be where we are today. And so we do owe, uh, the, we have the uh, responsibility to, to honor and to remember those things because, because you know what? Um, it's somewhere in this United States, some of that same stuff is taking place that we'll never know about as of right now, in current day. It may not be mm-hmm. in that form, but someone uh, is being um, segregated against. Someone is being, uh, uh, you know, it might not be physical, uh, but someone is being emotionally uh, attacked uh, to, the, to the level of it's, it's going to ruin them and, and make them question uh, who they are, our, our culture, our heritage. Um, but the, I'm going back to what you said, what you said, Virgil. Man, how can somebody tell you? <laughs> this is a history professor. I mean, how can somebody yeah. tell you this didn't happen? He just outright called you a liar, man. He just outright yeah. called you a liar, basically said that your your concerns about what happened in our history is not is not a is not valid. It, it, it yeah. just minimized. It just minimized. You know. What yeah. happened to us, man? Come on, dude. You know, that that's right there is disturbing. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there are accounts that there were bombs that were dropped uh, in Greenwood. And, you know, he basically said, I, you know, where did you get that from? And I cited it where I got that information from. Uh, it, it wasn't from military planes. It was from, from private planes. People were, were dropping, you know, whether it be Molotov, Cocktails or whatever it was, they there it was uh, said that there were bombs that were dropped uh, in this Greenwood during the 18 hours of massacre that was going on, and so you know I pointed out some things and I think he, you know I know he got pretty offended by it, and and I basically told him coming from a black man, you know you 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 don't live in Oklahoma. I'm not from Oklahoma, but I've talked to people that are from Tulsa. You know, and and I've had family that, that lives in Tulsa, and uh, but it, it was just really, uh, and I became really aware, Keith, that this uh, gentleman did not want to fully acknowledge that these things took place, and that there were white people who were responsible for this here, and it wasn't no, something no, no, that no, I can't let you. I can't let you go there. I can't. I can't let you. I can't let you let him off that easy. What you had is somebody <laughs> who hadn't taken the time to learn about it. And bottom line is, you were coming in uh, uprooting him. You were coming in, and, yeah. and, and he took it as you were thinking you were smarter than him. He couldn't. He couldn't relate. He didn't have any information on that. He couldn't have a competent discussion with you. So at the end of the day, I'm going to make you look like you don't know what you're talking about. So no, exactly, it's no pass. Yeah. He gets no pass yeah. on that. No, oh, he gets oh, no pass. Oh, no. Oh, no. And, I, and, I did, and I did give him a pass. And, and, and you know, and what was another surprising uh, aspect of that, Keith, was uh, almost, almost 100% of the class had not, was not aware. And we're talking about grown adults. We're not talking about teenagers. We're talking, you know, people in their 50s and, you know, and, and, a, and older had never heard of the Tulsa massacre, and it, well, of and, and so I mean, that lets you know. 
Yeah, how many people have heard of the Green? How many people have heard of the Green Book? Yeah, and and, and just like you know, LA, you know, Rosewood, you know, uh, there's just there's so much part of Black history that has been just wiped away. But one of the things that 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 we are are getting into, Keith, is the fact that law enforcement is supposed to be the one who's supposed to protect and serve. And here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, law enforcement did not even exist that day, even though they tried to prevent the mob from coming into the courthouse, taking this young man, and they wanted to take him and so they could take him and lynch him and hang him. But the sheriff did not allow that to happen. But, Keith, we're coming up on uh, taking our break, man, but this is a, a great topic that we're talking about. A century after the Tulsa massacre, Tulsa confronts its bloody past and how law enforcement failed to protect the black residents of, of Tulsa, Oklahoma. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. May I help you? Yeah, it's just cold. My sinuses feel like they're going to explode. Sudafed, aisle five. My allergies have my sinuses all stuffed up. Sudafed, aisle five. Tell the man what's wrong. My sinuses. Sudafed, aisle five. Sinus misery? Get Sudafed. Nothing stronger at relieving even your worst sinus symptoms. Not even a prescription. This could just... Sudafed, aisle five. Sudafed, prescription strength sinus relief. Based on 24-hour dose of pseudoephedrine. Back to the uh, Unit Law show. Talk to law enforcement, uh, Real Talk, Chief Chief Puffery and Chief Virgil Green. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us. Big shout out to Myrna, always listening. Also others on the line. And looks like folks in Alabama, some other places. I recognize the, um, recognize the area codes. Uh, just one note, if you have a question or a comment, I will be screening the calls. You can uh, go live. You can tell me what you want to say. And uh, she would be happy to, to answer those questions for you on such a such a uh, important topic. I will say, guys, um, again, comment question real quick. First thing is um, sometimes, you know, ignorance, like you said, Chief Humphrey, is, is not a real rationale. Some people have their own agenda. Some people, some of us have a self-hate gene. We don't like being black. We're ashamed to be black. I mean, I'm I'm just going to keep the 100. And so yet that guy that you were talking about, uh, Chief Green, could fit into those categories. Remember, the devil knows information, too. That don't make it right. Um, That's Mm -hmm. my two cents. Um, Now, uh, I got an email from someone that asked, because you went to the break talking about law enforcement, and they didn't really do anything. Was there any black law enforcement back then that was in place, guys, and then they were told to stand down, or was there any, and to your knowledge, uh, any at all? 
So, and, 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 and through my uh, research and looking into uh, this topic of talking about the where was law enforcement uh, during the Tulsa race massacre, there, there were uh, I made a, a handful of, of black law enforcement uh, in Tulsa in 1921. Uh, but when you only have uh, a handful, uh, you are not able to uh, do the things that you want to do to protect your community. And so, uh, but Tulsa has has um, has always had a, a since the Tulsa race massacre. There's been a, a divide between. Uh, the black residents in Tulsa uh, and the white residents in Tulsa. And uh, even within the, the, the police department, uh, the, uh, Keith uh, even uh, can speak on this as well. Uh, some several, a uh, couple of decades ago, uh, several, a group of black police officers sued the, uh, the Tulsa police department for uh, discriminatory, discriminatory practices and hiring and, and promotions um and uh so there has not been a, a very good relationship that the city of Tulsa has had with the black community uh even though the former police chief uh Jordan he came out and he uh acknowledged the how the uh, Tulsa police department failed to to serve and protect the black residents uh but that just was was lip service uh you know after decades and decades and decades uh the Tulsa Police Department the Tulsa County Sheriff's Department never even acknowledged uh how they failed to protect uh the citizens of of Greenwood and so um it, it's just uh and we go back to why the why law enforcement does not understand that there is such a distrust between the black community and law enforcement because when you look at just the the topic that we're talking about in 1921 how police failed to protect thousands of of, of black residents um and then you look at other places around the country you know Elaine Arkansas you know Florida uh other other places that have had other states that have had you know massacres of, of black residents and law enforcement has always been at the forefront of being involved with it and in Tulsa guys there were uh, police officers deputies uh, police officers who were a part of the KKK and so how is it that you're going to ask them to serve and protect when on the other side they're walking around with these hooded sheets on and there is actually pictures of the kkk walking around in greenwood with these that this everybody knows is the symbol of the kkk and so when you have go ahead well, Mark, well, well, well very good. Uh, uh, it was it was declared martial law. And think about this now. When yeah, it was, was declared martial law. Anybody could be a police officer. Anybody could be a police officer, and especially if you're talking about sheriff, anybody could carry a gun and wear a badge. 
And a lot of the people yeah. that were hired back then is because they basically swore to do things that were in violation of the law, violating people's civil rights and things like that. So with that being said, um, why would you? Why, why would you? When you don't believe, when you believe everything you say is right and you believe that you're actually upholding the law and that people are doing something wrong, you just got to look at what was on the books. Look at the laws that were on the books. Look at the look at look at the things that were happening. Look at the things that people were allowed to do. So if if it's against the law, uh, if interracial marriage is against the law, if riding at the front of the bus is against the law, if, if, if going to certain stores and things were in the were in the law uh, was against the law, why would you? Why would you? Why would you? And how could you uphold the law? You yeah. basically you think you you think you're doing the right thing because you are upholding the laws that were on the books at that time. It was not against the law to beat someone up that didn't look like you. So you you got to understand that that was that was just that was the law. They truly believed it was against the law. I mean, it was it was the law. Think about why the clan was formed. Think about the the purpose mm-hmm. of the clan and what the clan did. So I mean, you, you're talking about. You're talking about people who thought that they were doing what they were supposed to do because they were that was the law, and I'm okay, I'm more you know when you think that you, when you dehumanize people, why wouldn't you feel bad? Why wouldn't you try to do something right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and you know, Keith, one of the things that uh, uh, I was talking with uh, a good friend of ours earlier was uh you know Tulsa has you know we talk about the racial injustice in Tulsa and we talk about this massacre and we talk about how law enforcement was involved how they failed to protect and then we look at J Edgar Hoover who has a uh, the FBI building is named after him and how it's well known that how he felt about black people, black men, especially Martin Luther King, Megar Evers, uh, Malcolm X, uh, how the FBI uh, did this covert stuff uh, with uh, with these civil rights leaders. And so, but there's never been a conversation about renaming the J. Edgar Hoover Building. And but here was a man who was an image of race racist within the federal government, within the largest federal government agency in the United States. But nobody wants to say we need to change that name because he has a bad image in law enforcement. Um and and so when we talk about the, the Tulsa uh race rides it 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 goes back to the uh where were where was law enforcement they failed to protect all these uh thousands of 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 residents yeah in those 18 hours and then after that and so uh it's just tragic that uh we have here it is coming up on 100 years later and there are still situations that happen where law enforcement is failing, has failed to protect the rights of black men and women. And then when 
black people have these conversations, those in the in the white community in in law enforcement have an issue when you talk about racial injustice. Uh, and it's like that's not something that we should really be talking about. And so uh, it, we really need to uh, acknowledge history. We really, really need to teach this part of history, whether you're in Oklahoma, whether you're in Texas, New Mexico, Alabama, wherever. Uh, this is something that we really need to talk about and 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 really uh, uh, because, again, people will say, so history doesn't repeat itself, uh, but just like today is the one you know one year anniversary of George Floyd, and the George Floyd criminal justice bill, they're still having this debate about passing meaningful uh, criminal justice reform, and and just let this sink in. It's been probably close to 55, 57 years that there's been any real meaningful criminal justice reform that's been passed. And so what does that say about the law enforcement industry when it's been over 50-something years that there hasn't been any serious criminal justice reform uh, to uh, to address the racial injustice that occurs in our communities uh and you know we we talk about george floyd we can talk about a recent incident that took place uh, uh la as you're aware in north carolina that now those officers who uh have they won't face any kind of charges but the fbi or i mean the uh, department of justice is investigating as well as the fbi believe so uh that that's why you want to see that there is some progress that race relations will be better between the black community and the police. And, but you continue to see incidents that happen in North Carolina. Uh, you continue to see incidents uh, that occur in other communities across the country. And we have to ask ourselves, when will law enforcement get it right? Uh, and yeah, there's one bad apple, but there again, uh, that one bad apple sheds a, a real negative uh, light on law enforcement, no matter where you're at. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that really need to be done, but we want to remind you, if you're just now tuning into the show, that uh, we're talking about the a century after the, the, the race massacre, uh, Tulsa confronts its bloody past. And where was law enforcement, how they failed to protect the, the black residents of, of, of Tulsa, Oklahoma? And uh, But if you miss any parts of this show, uh, we want to remind you that you can go to the thebachelornews.airtime you can go to the bachelor news airtime dot pro and uh uh listen to the rebroadcast show of you and the law um and this is again this is a great topic if you've never heard about the Tulsa race massacre, please um look this uh topic up and 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 read about this history 
that the uh, state of Oklahoma is going to be um, uh, celebrating this Memorial Day weekend. But we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. We're going to get back into this important topic of the Tulsa Race Massacre uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Do you suffer from chronic CFED or can't focus energy drain? Try over-the-counter Vibrant. One tablet contains the same caffeine as a cup of coffee, but without the calories or coffee breath. Vibrant. Caffeine, not coffee. Taking Vibrant may result in increased productivity and decreased dread in setting alarms. Unexpected enjoyment of the graveyard shift has been associated with Vibrant. Vibrant may be a better budget option than drinking coffee. It may also decrease the urge to doze off, skip work, or exhibit signs of slacking. All jokes aside, always read the label, take only as directed, and limit caffeine as it may cause real side effects. Not for children under age 12. News radio show on uh, WCOM, Chapel Hill, IBM TV. Um, I want to share this with you, Chief Green, and your your audience. That, um, well, first, you know, someone sent me an email. Um, his name is Joe, and it's only Joe out of West Virginia. Um, he said that uh, uh, first. We need to make sure we don't call it a Tulsa riot. To your point, it was a massacre. Um, a riot is something that's sort of just getting out of hand. This was premeditated based on everything, all the lies that started it all. Um, number two, he said the official count was about 36 deaths, but he said historians and scientists who d- dug up the, the bodies and did some DNA said it could be as high as 300 um, and he went on to say a lot of people as to your point don't know didn't know about this up until recently where um, the movie Watchmen came out uh, and of course Oprah Winfrey's coming out with a, a movie um, a drama on it from Tulsa I think back then to Tulsa now, some of the things that they're trying to do, like you mentioned, some of the people that live there. Uh, but he also mentioned that some of the um, blacks that were left, Chief, were f- fearful to come out for fear of their lives, for fear of retaliation. And so, yeah, and fear of retaliation from law enforcement. So, yeah, those laws were on the books because that was the law of the land. But that didn't mean you had to participate in it, in it either. Um, so that's what Joe from uh, West Virginia pointed out. Oh, well, we definitely want to thank Joe from West Virginia for tuning in and listening to you and the law. Uh, and and uh, as always, uh, uh, listen to us every week and uh, for uh, some great topics that we have with you all about policing and, and the minority community. But, you know, I want to, you know, share this, Keith, in L.A. with with our listeners. Um, we, we're talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we're talking about this 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 massacre that's coming up uh, on 100 years come May the 31st. Uh, it, but I want to go back to just 
how law enforcement has failed to protect black men and women. I'm going to go back to an incident that took place in Okima, Oklahoma, which is about uh, 65 miles uh, south of Tulsa. There was an incident that happened where a uh, this uh, uh, the father was accused of stealing some horses or cows or whatever. The sheriff goes out to the to this home in, uh, in which was in in, uh, in Ofusky County in, in Payton, Oklahoma, and uh, they get into a confrontation and the, the 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 father shoots and kills the the, the deputy. And uh, so they arrest him, take him to the Ofusky County Jail. Um, several, a uh, couple hours later, or a day later, uh, a mob of white men goes back to the home, and they take the, the wife and the, the son, and they take them uh, to a bridge which, which runs over the Canadian uh, uh, Canadian River in, in Okima and they hang the mother and the son and there are pictures of white men, white families, white children uh, just watching as they hung the mother and son o- over a bridge over this river but law enforcement did, didn't do anything to protect the mother and the son. And even though the father was accused of killing uh, or shooting the deputy, uh, and there's some questions as to how that took place, there was, again, a fail to uh, to protect. And so we, we know these things happened in 1921, Keith, but when you look at the things that have happened in, in 2020, uh, going back to Eric Gardner, going back to Trayvon, going back to Michael Brett, all these black men and women, law enforcement has failed to protect their basic rights as a citizen. And so people wonder why we have, why there's so much distrust in this profession that you and I care so much about. And in, um, uh, in, the simple fact that law enforcement has failed to acknowledge um, the, the things that they have been involved with. So, Keith, I know I've been a little long-winded, but, you know, I, uh, I'll i let you j- jump in and chime in. Well, no, you know, uh, uh, the gentleman that called in earlier, he's absolutely right. It wasn't a riot. Uh, uh, it, was a, it was a massacre. We don't know how many people lost their lives. Uh, it, it Correct. Estimated. It could have been many, many more than that. And so we really don't know. The, the, the thing about it is, is that you've got to understand, and I've said this, uh, the, the platform that, that law, American law enforcement was founded. Uh, you look at the history of it. You look at the highwaymen, the Klan, the slave patrols. Uh, when you're seen as inferior, uh, when you're seen as the fact that you don't have the same rights as someone else, well, why would you protect someone? Uh, and then, uh, you're right, uh, it, it was an intimidation factor. Uh, you, you were 
even if even if you did have someone who may have been um, willing to protect you, uh, that person, and I'm talking about maybe a, a sheriff who was white, um, that was willing to uh, protect you, uh, then their lives became in danger because they were intimidated and they were called names. Um, listen, you're absolutely right, and, and, and L.A. brought up a good point in the listener. Uh, the, the way that, that the, the, there was no um, respect, uh, bodies were dumped. Uh, bodies were dumped in mass graves. Bodies were uh, uh, just disrespected and, and, and mutilated. Uh, that's why mass grave. That that's those are things that occurred, and and those are things that our that our that our kids and 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 people who who are history buffs. Those are things that we should continue to talk about, and 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 history does repeat itself. And well. There was a statement about history repeating itself, and I can't remember the exact. It was a minister that, that gave a, a comment about history repeating itself. But, but man, why would you not want to talk about it? Man, those, those individuals were tortured, and and why you why would you not honor them? Um, and I'll say this again: uh, if it had not been for incidents like Tulsa, um, let me back up. Do you realize? that Harlem and Tulsa were some of the few um, cities that had uh, stockbrokers, African-American stockbrokers, banks, realtors, mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and then there were others. But you said something earlier about Oklahoma. Oklahoma at one point had the most concentrated area, concentrated areas of African-Americans, so more, Af- one, uh, more African-American cities in the nation at one point. Uh, a yeah. lot of people don't realize that, but 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 I, I will tell you this, man. I, I I don't I don't see how we can live with that without not not talking about it, and why museums and parks and things have only been in existence. There's only been a park memorial um, for for 20 years. I mean, mm-hmm. really? Come on now. I mean, yeah. People were massacred, man. And, and you yeah. and you disrespect their memory by you've got a vote on a park, you, you you've got a vote on can I talk about this? It, it's it's very disheartening. Yeah, yeah, it is, Keith. And, I would think too, guys. I would think too, guys. My final thoughts. I appreciate it. Um, because we have a history of people just thinking that. We never had any success in this country. It's important to talk about Tulsa because we were thriving. Like you, like you guys said, Oklahoma per capita, some of the, the, um, the richest and most um, successful people in the country, are Harlem and, and, and uh, parts of even North Carolina, Durham, and, and places like that. So it, from that standpoint, just to talk about the success and what happened when, you know, uh, the Europeans came in and, and felt jealous or whatever the case may be, whatever the reason they did their diabolical things that they did, um, took that all the way but at least if we're telling that story it does show we aren't we weren't all just sharecroppers all the time and and that kind of thing if, if that makes any sense yeah well and, and you know uh la just like he said you know greenwood the greenwood district uh in tulsa was considered one of the most affluent all black communities in the country and when you say you know in the country just look at how large 
New York uh, is, and and you had Harlem, uh, but Tulsa, which is nowhere near the size of, of New York and Harlem, it was that uh, that well known by Booker T. Washington and other great uh, African American uh, who came to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, just saw how businesses were thriving and the culture of of African Americans, what they were doing, not just in Tulsa, but in in Bowley, Oklahoma, uh, Taft, Oklahoma, so many uh, so many other black communities uh, that were really thriving in in the uh, in the twenties and thirties, um, and the fact that it was just wiped away. Winwood, Oklahoma. Yeah, when yeah, yeah. and and Winwood. you know Keith, and just recently, Keith, you know. Uh, just within the last couple of months, they are still finding mass graves in the Greenwood area. And so, uh, which, you know, it's just, here it is coming up on 100 years later, and they're still discovering mass graves in the Greenwood district. And so, you know, well, you know, you know, Virgil. I'll tell you, man. If you you go back and and you just kind of think about it, man. That, you know, a hundred years may seem like a long time, but when you're at the half century mark, you know, like like you you and I are, man. That's not a long mm-hmm. time. You know, it comes right back to Civil Rights Act. That's not a long yeah. time, man. And and uh, no. and, and uh, so, you know, it it it, it goes back to. How much do people are we value? Uh, how much yeah. of our history? You know, it's that, so never be ashamed. One of the things I, I tell young people, uh, and especially when I go to the academy and I talk, I tell them that there is not an ethnic group in this world that should ever be ashamed of their history, whether it's good or bad. If you did it, you claim it, and what you've done to correct it. You know, you can't just yeah. make it go away. So, you know, yeah. the, the, the fact the fact of it is that's how that's history. You know, how yeah. do you, everybody wants to know how we got to where we are? How did how did uh, Greenwood get started? How did Harlem get yeah. started? You know, mm-hmm. why did why do you have HBCUs? You know, yeah. why, why do you have? Well, you got to know why. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, and 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 so. But like the gentleman said earlier, you're absolutely right. It was a massacre, and we need to identify it as that. We we, we can't sugarcoat. Yeah. And that's one thing I think you and I take pride on this show. We don't sugarcoat. We tell the truth. There's no offense. Uh, I don't think there's ever anything that we that we've ever lied about, or we that we've ever fabricated, or we've ever embellished. Uh, the fact of this is history. And and the thing about it is also Virgil and to the listeners in today's dollars. That would have been almost $33 million. Exactly. $33 million yeah. worth of damage. Because um, you were talking $1.5 million in, I think, buildings and then other damages of $750,000. Um, yeah. That, that's, 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 that's a lot of money in, in today. So you will never repay yeah. the family no. descendants of those individuals. You'll never. There's not enough money in the nation. To, to, to pay, you know. Yeah, and, and there's been and there's been talks, Keith, uh, about you know reparations to the ancestors of of those that were 
killed, uh, who were murdered in in uh, in the Greenwood area. And you know, I'll share this with our listeners, Keith, this, as we're coming up on uh, a couple of minutes before we have to end the show, which has been a, another great show, a, a, a great topic. Uh, several uh, several about a couple of weeks ago, uh, Viola Fletcher. She is the oldest living survivor of the Tulsa race massacre. Uh, she uh, spoke to uh, to Congress at a hearing about the, the Tulsa race massacre and what she lived through as a seven-year-old child growing up in Greenwood. And so to, to hear somebody who is 107 years old uh, what she went through, what her family went through uh, in 1921, and as you stated, that's not that long ago. I mean, it's before our time, but here is a lady who was 107 years old, who is the oldest living survivor of the Tulsa race massacre. She is still able to tell her story about what took place that day. And so this weekend... Uh, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, that, was you, the, the, that wasn't before your time. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right. Uh, but, yeah, man, so this weekend, you know, we got the, the president, uh, vice president. I believe they're going to be in Tulsa Monday. There's a lot of events going on in Tulsa, Oklahoma this weekend. So uh, if you are near the, the Tulsa, Oklahoma area where you live in Arkansas, uh, you know, take a drive over to Tulsa. Uh, if you live out in Texas, wherever, uh, try to attend this historical event that is coming up on 100 years later uh, as uh, they talk about the um, what took place uh, Memorial Day weekend, um, May the 31st, 1921, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, but Keith, this has been a, another great show. Uh, another great topic, and uh, we want to remind our listeners that uh, if you uh, miss any parts of this show, uh, definitely check out the rebroadcast show at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. That's thebachelornews.airtime.pro. And uh, uh, also, uh, you can go to our Facebook page and like our Facebook page and follow us, and uh, information is always shared on on our Facebook and Instagram about uh, this topic and many other topics that, that we uh, talk with our listeners about every week. But it's uh, been a, a, a great show, and uh, we want to definitely thank all of you, our listeners, for uh, listening in. And for those of you who are uh, faithful listeners uh, in, in Arkansas and everywhere else around the country, we definitely thank you for allowing us to uh, talk to you about uh, things that matter between uh, the police and, and the black community. So uh, tune in next week for another uh, great topic of you and the law. But my brother, Keith, uh, and we will see you next week. And All right, brother, you take to, care to the listeners. Take care. All right. Well, you've been listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.